Welcome to Awareness to Action, a podcast brought to you by the Northwestern Community Services Board Prevention Department. I'm your host, Casey, a social worker and prevention specialist here in Virginia. Our podcast goal is to promote wellness through conversation, connection, and action. We hope each episode will leave you feeling inspired and motivated to look for ways to get involved in your own community. Awareness to Action. I'm excited to welcome Gail Maddox-Taylor to the show today. Gail is the Director of the Office of Behavioral Health Wellness for the Virginia Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Services, also known as the NPN, where she provides leadership in Virginia's prevention efforts. Gail also leads Virginia's statewide initiatives, including problem gambling prevention, suicide prevention, mental health first aid, adverse childhood experiences, and behavioral health equity and disparities initiatives. Gail has served as the NPN liaison on the board of the Society of Prevention Research, is on CADCA's Coalition Advisory Council, and serves as the national NPN first vice president. Clearly, Gail is incredibly engaged in work and service to her community. Gail has had a remarkable career, and we are lucky to be talking with her as she prepares for retirement. I can't describe how motivated I felt by the end of our conversation. Gail's heart for others is evident, and I think her words of wisdom can serve as guideposts for us all. As a heads up, Gail and I broadly discuss topics including suicide, substance use, trauma, domestic violence, and mental health issues throughout this episode. All right, Gail, welcome to the show. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you, Casey, for inviting me. It's my pleasure. Looking forward to our conversation. I am too. So let's start with you telling our listeners about the work that you do and the path you took to get here. Okay. Currently, I'm the director of the Office of Behavioral Health Wellness for the Virginia Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Services, otherwise known as DBHS. It's quite a mouthful. Um, And in our Office of Behavioral Health Wellness, We do work as it relates to substance use disorder prevention, suicide prevention, mental health promotion in the form of mental health first aid. We work to reduce access by youth to tobacco products, adverse childhood experiences, behavioral health equity and disparities, cannabis use prevention by underage youth, um, coalition development, and the average childhood experiences and um, problem gambling prevention. So we do quite a bit on the prevention side, preventing problems, behaviors from ever occurring. And the reason I do that work from a prevention perspective is that many years ago, I was a probation officer and um, had several kids murdered in a summer. And it was as a result of being involved and not seeing any hope or any way out. So it's like, you know what, we really need to get in on the front end. And so I left probation work, juvenile probation work, and started working at Rikerville Community Services Board. And we worked in a housing community where people were in poverty and had many, many risk factors. And so we started what we call Wounded Tomb Services in the Connect program and work with children as well as their parents and their grandparents in order to make sure that they were ready in school, that they were exposed to alternative activities and many other things from a prevention standpoint. 
Um, I was there for quite a bit and then went to Hanover Community Services Board and was asked to create prevention services from the ground up because they did not have a prevention director. They only had one part-time person. So that's what we did. And it was an interesting experience in that being an African-American woman in a majority white community, the sheriff took me under his wing because he said the people that are using drugs and the people that are decision makers, they think the people look like you. He said, no, they look like me. I'm being a white gentleman. So he worked really hard to remove any barriers that I might have faced in Hanover. And so we built the very first coalition they ever had. And then we created many, many, many prevention programs and ended up with a budget of almost a half million dollars, which was great. Left there and went to the governor's office for substance abuse prevention and started to do work in order to change the paradigm of how prevention was done across the Commonwealth. And so we worked across the state and started doing more coalition work and moving into evidence-based programs, which was very exciting. Then left there and went back to Henrico, but then got a call to go to the federal level. And I started working with all 11 states and territories in the southeastern part of the country to include Washington, D.C., Puerto Rico, the Virgin Islands, and the southeastern states. And we started to build prevention systems within all the states, which was very interesting to see how other states do their work in order and then to hope bring put those tools in my toolbox that would help me in this current job in Virginia. And then I had a short span working at the Army National Guard Bureau as the um, SME subject matter expert as it relates substance use disorder, and we focused on prevention and making sure that um, National Guard service members had access to services in order to address substance use disorder, as well as to address the risk factors that they were experiencing. So did that with five states, created a model, but then got called to come to Virginia um, to be in my current role as the director of the Office of health wellness. So I've been around a while. I've been around a while. And those things really help inform the work that we're doing in Virginia. It's an amazing, amazing career. Quite, quite the resume. (laughs) I've learned a lot from a lot of people and you never know how much you um, can learn or you can never take the opportunity to learn. Yeah. So I've had a lot of mentors, a lot of tours, et cetera. So it's been a great career. And I imagine there's, with such a, a wide array of experience, there's probably things that you pull from now that at the time you couldn't have imagined yourself, you know, drawing upon decades later. Exactly. Because if you could tell me back when I was working here, right, so working in programs, doing direct services, that data would be a big part of the work that I do. It would be like, no, because I remember having that conversation. No, but now we're we're very much into data-driven decision-making because we get so few resources in prevention. It's important we use those widely and to address the needs that our data tells us. So, yes. Absolutely. Um, you mentioned coalitions a few times and it, it made me realize that we haven't talked about coalitions in a while on the show. So I'm wondering if you can share with our listeners who might not be familiar what a coalition is and how prevalent they are because there are hopefully coalitions in the communities of all the people who are listening. 
coalitions are so important because coalitions reflect the fabric of the community. That means people in the community, that means agencies and organizations within the community, that means big mama on the corner, that means Benny at the grill, that means all those people that have a voice in the community coming together to look at the community, see what the issues are and how they can come up with solutions to address those issues, how they can engage policymakers for change in policies, how they can um, leverage resources from local businesses, et cetera, how they can engage youth and have youth voices at the table because youth know what's going on. And oftentimes folks say youth are leaders of tomorrow. No, youth are leaders of today. There are youth-led coalitions that have made monumental changes within communities. So once again, they're part of the fabric of communities. And coalitions, that's what they are. They are the fabric of the community that come together as members of that community to address community needs. So very important. We have a huge initiative within our office where we're trying to build more coalitions across the Commonwealth. We had approximately 24. Five years ago, we now have 64 that are um, active. We're excited about that. We require the community services boards to partner with the community coalition in order to make sure that we have a clear understanding of the needs of the community. Because guess what? The community is at the table. There's a place for the voices of the community to be heard. So that's the importance of coalitions. And for anyone listening who likes any part of what you just heard, a quick Google search with your area's name. Uh, in it and the coalition will hopefully bring you to to one near you because the coalitions do need all different perspectives, all different uh, careers that people are pursuing, all different poles and ties in the community. That's how they become so powerful. Exactly. And you never know what skill set you have that may be an asset to a coalition. You may have an accounting background. You may just enjoy putting packages together, um, packets of information together. Um, you might not mind making phone calls to people to heighten awareness about different things. So yes, you never know how your skill set can be utilized. So please look in your area, find a community coalition. And if you can't find one, you can go to the Community Coalitions of Virginia. They keep a running list of active coalitions. So they may be resource as well. So Gail, when we first spoke and I heard your story, you told me that you kept feeling like there's got to be a better way. And I'm sure that that belief continues to guide your work all these years later. So I would just love it if you could speak more to that. Back in the day when prevention first started, we would have a lot of classroom programs and other programs to teach information about drugs. Okay, tobacco is bad for you. It will do this for your lungs. Um, you're too young to drink alcohol, so don't do it. One of the things I realized is that looking back, there were some children in that classroom that could have witnessed domestic violence before they came. There were children who were in poverty and had not had a meal. 
there were children who, let's say from a more affluent background, mom and dad may have been working 24-7. There's very little connectedness because of their focus on job and career. So there's a sense of isolation and loneliness. Also, in prevention back then, we know that we targeted children. But as we've grown older or gotten wiser and with more information, like Maya Angelou says, when you know better, you do better. We know that we need to do across the lifespan prevention because risk factors can be at any age, okay? And we also always need to take into account, we need to build that protective factors in order to buffer the impact of those risk factors. And that's not just with children like we used to do. We need to look at that in schools. We need to look at that in communities. We need to look at that in the environment. We also need to look more at social determinants of health. We know that poverty creates huge risks um, in communities and in families. So those social determinants of health, having access to healthcare, having access to services, are key variables as we look at doing our prevention work. We need to look at policies, we need to look at practices and not just focus on giving out information with if within a classroom or within a, a small group. We need to start looking at changing the environment so that everyone has access to a healthy environment, which is why like when we do our um, tobacco work, and underage access, we make sure that local retailers know not to sell tobacco products to young people, as opposed to just teaching young people in a classroom tobacco is not good for you. You really need to look at those environmental factors so that not just those 24 kids in the class um, are impacted. All communities, all kids are impacted by decreasing their access to tobacco. So yeah, there are a lot of things we need to do differently. Another area that's really critical in how we um, do our work, looking at those adverse childhood experiences. Once again, you've had um, Keith Cartwright, who is one of our state champions as it relates to adverse childhood experiences, start looking at how we can prevent ACEs because we've changed our philosophy. Historically, we've, there's always been a gateway, gateway drug. We would say tobacco is the gateway to alcohol or other drugs. Now we say that adverse childhood experiences is the gateway, which is trauma, to problem behaviors, not just substance use disorder, but suicide, emotional illness, um, depression, anxiety. We also know that ACEs are, can be a precursor to physical challenges as well, physical problem behaviors. So yeah, so we, we are looking at a lot of different things now. We've changed the way we do our work to include those things, which we weren't aware of those connections back in the day when I first started prevention. And that's been a huge shift across so many areas of human services, you know, not just in prevention and truly every level of care, we're learning and understanding more and more how that trauma plays into the work that's currently being done or the issues that we're currently seeing. Um, what other paradigm shifts or systems development have you seen in your time in the state? Because I'm sure there's been a lot of it. 
there's been a lot of it. I think I mentioned one um, that I just want to reiterate again, going from not just doing work in the classroom, but doing work in the environment, um, the development of coalitions, because historically community services boards have been the primary um, source of prevention work. So going more from an agency approach to a community-based approach through community coalitions. Um, additionally, one of the things that we have really shifted is that we have gone from um, doing prevention services to creating systems that do, that deliver prevention services. And when I say prevention systems, I mean, we look at the strategic prevention framework model so that we look at data. Once again, I say, you know, I can't see you doing the data piece, but now that is the foundation for the work that we do. We know it's important to have data, to do data-driven decision-making, to help identify those problems within the community, problems within the state. We know that we have to build capacity, so we need to have systems in place for workforce development. We have to have the capacity to collect data. We need to have a strategic plan in order to take that data and create a logic model that informs a plan and how we're going to take that data, do an evidence-based approach and what outcomes we want to achieve. We know that we need to implement with things that work. Back in the day, it's like, okay, if we tell an auditorium of young people or if we go to a church and just heighten awareness, that should be it. And it's like, mm, it takes a little bit more than that. The data did not support that we were getting any outcomes. So to do evidence-based, evidence not just programs, but practices and strategies. Ideal strategy, a community coalition. Okay, we know that's effective. We also have to evaluate what we do to make sure that we are doing our due diligence to deliver what we told the communities that we would deliver and that we're actually seeing change. And with that, we have to figure out how to sustain our outcomes and to do culturally re relevant services. Not every service is going to be, or initiative is going to fit every, the needs of every culture. We have to be very clear to meet those cultural needs within our communities. What might work in Southwest won't work in Richmond City, okay? What would work with um, a Hispanic community, a program that does not even have um, interpretation in language, that's not going to be effective if we aren't um, clear on what the cultural relevance will be for a particular initiative and strategy. So yeah, that has changed a lot as it relates to the work that we do. So a lot of paradigms have shifted from prevention in the classroom to prevention across the life changing the environment for and for everyone, not just one person at a time. Population health is different, is new, and we're excited about it. Yeah, it is exciting. How do you ensure and encourage that the programs being implemented are culturally relevant? What does that look like? Going back to the coalition and having the voices at the table, you have to make sure you hear the voices of the community. Okay, and there's so many different aspects of culture. It's just so important that you do your due diligence to research to see if this particular strategy, who it was effective with, who it was not effective with, 
have those conversations with members of the community that you're targeting or have, that have reached out to you to see what they think would be effective. For example, in the Southwest, we know that many of our programs, practices, and strategies go to the faith community because the faith community is a huge part of the culture in most of the Southwest. So we know in order to be culturally relevant, the faith community has to be at the table. A lot of those pastors and, and rabbis and whoever else that represents the faith community, they need to be a part of the conversation. So communication, having that conversation, to hear about community needs. One of the key stakeholders in many of the African-American communities have been in the barbershop with the barbers being leaders of the messages as it relates to mental health, reducing the stigma of mental illness. And when you have your barber have a, can have a candid conversation with you, that is a culturally relevant aspect for African-American communities, well, African-American men specifically. Well, my barber told me this when he was, you know, taking care of me. So it's like to have those champions with the various communities, it's so important to determine if it's going to have relevance as a strategy in those communities. And I mean, truly essential to the long-term effectiveness of the work because it's, it's, I, I just, I hear you saying over and over again, due diligence, it's crucial that we get that right because this work is, it can't just be implemented wherever, whenever, because that can be harmful. You know, we look at this work as being good, but if it's not done well or not done intentionally, that's not good. Right. It can be harmful or ineffective um, because I know of a community um, in the Virgin Islands where folks came in, they thought that they knew what the needs are. They did focus group. The community told them what they wanted and the folks that did the needs assessment were like, no, y'all need better schools. The community said, we need to have porter toilets around in our community to prevent some of the other issues. And that's one of the things that they talked about. But it was just like none of the needs were listened to by a, the, the voices of the community were not listened to by the folks that came in to do the needs assessment. And that's an issue also. If you come in without establishing relationship and thinking that you know better, it's not going to work. You have to be respectful. And if you want it sustained, you have to have champions within the community that, that's bought in and that's able to bring in other members of the community to engage in whatever efforts you might have. So yeah, there's a lot of examples of that. So you have to start with community members, hearing their voice, respecting what they're saying, and working in partnership, not top down, but working in partnership with the community. Yeah, because I, I, people will hear me say that if Big Mama does not give you entree into that community because you've ignored her, you won't get into that community. So be respectful of who the leaders are that the community has identified, not who you think the leaders are, if you ever want to make an impact, because those voices are important. Before we started recording, we were talking about humility and how valuable that is in every piece of this work. Every piece of this work. It is so important because 
If you go in thinking that you know more than the members that live in that community, regardless as to the community, um, that is not a good place to start at all. Humility, cultural humility, mm-hmm. um, respect, just some basics in human connection are just crucial if you want to make an impact or work with the community to make an impact within the community. And as practitioners or people in the field of human service that requires a lot of self-reflection and checking yourself of why am I here? What's my task? You know, if I'm here to do a needs assessment, but I assume I already know everything, why am I doing the needs assessment? (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. If you're going from your lens and your lens only, you can bet that that's not an accurate depiction of those community needs. The voices of that community need to be a part of that needs assessment. The lens that they see through needs to be reflected within that needs assessment. And when we talk about needs assessment, it's not always the um, quantitative data that we want to capture. We need that qualitative data. Those stories of the community are so important. Oftentimes, some traditional, quote unquote, and I'll put it in quotes, research methods. And I've, I've had this conversation with the Society of Prevention Research. We have changed so much in the way that we do prevention. The research needs change to be more reflective of where we are now. And that qualitative research, hearing those stories that are told within the community, needs to be captured in a very culturally relevant way without lenses of those researchers changing it to reflect something else. I don't mean to get off on research, but all aspects are important if we want to make an impact and have outcomes to report. Yeah. I could talk about research and data all day. So I always appreciate (laughs) a tangent on that. Um, Gail, for our listeners who, who might not know, can you just, you kind of just did it in explaining your point, but can you give a a definition of what quantitative data or research is versus qualitative? Quantitative is primarily numbers. Okay, we had 30 people um, come to this event. They did a pre-post test and their scores were X, Y, and Z. The qualitative um, research is more around hearing the narratives, hearing the stories, which to me are so rich with information and content. To me, the the stories is where you really get the connections to people because people are more than just numbers as it relates to research and um, prevention and determining outcomes. So, yes. And the stories give us context for the numbers so often. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. Definitely. So, Gail, this is a huge question. So answer it however you want. Why does investing in prevention matter? And you've touched on it, but I wanted to ask it directly. We've heard for forever. I don't think there's hard. There's a lot of folks that have heard an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Okay, we hear it a lot. Prevention works because we have the data to support it. Folks get it as it relates to um, in the physical health arena. For example, if you want to prevent obesity, you know, you have to exercise, you have to eat well, 
um, things like that. But when it comes to behavioral health, there's not a clear understanding that it works. But we know if we reduce the risk, whether it's through looking at ACEs, trying to prevent children from going through trauma and or addressing it earlier, if we change policies so that we know that um, we are reducing access to tobacco, we're reducing access to alcohol for its misuse, we know that those problem behaviors will not develop. Because once problem behaviors develop, it's so expensive, not just monetarily to fix, but also just think about the damage that's been done to relationships, that's been done to health, that's been done to, let's say, in, in your employment, um, in your school performance, um, your reputation within your community, et cetera. So it's really important that we work to put strategies in place that prevent problem behaviors because the further you go up to the continuum where you might do treatment, the more damage has been done at many levels of a person's experience. So yeah, less invest in prevention, but more into prevention. That way we can decrease the um, opportunity for people to need treatment and yeah, have a whole lot more to, to, to work on, to fix, to rectify, yeah. I think when people who are not engaged with preventative work hear prevention, they think about like the programs and maybe the substances that we're trying to address. I feel like people see or hear the, the things involved in prevention work, but you and I know that it's all human work. It's all relationships. It's all connections. Can you just speak to to that part of prevention? Which is why coalitions work. Connecting communities so that people can develop relationships. So people know that they're being heard, so that people know that they are cared about, okay? Which is why mentoring has always been so effective because that strong, caring adult, all right? Being involved with young people. Also with adults, when you know that you're cared about, when you know that you have a connection with someone, it gives you purpose. It gives you hope. And communities want hope. Schools want hope. Young people want hope. Doesn't want hope. And a sense of connectedness, that there's a community, that there's an individual that cares about me. Because when you have that in place, you don't, you don't, well, you reduce the risk of you moving down another path, whether it's um, substances to reduce that emptiness when you have that hopelessness, when you don't have the connection, when you don't have the, yeah, that support system around you. So prevention is more, like you were, like you're saying, Casey, it's much more than a program, but it's that sense of purpose, that sense of connection that sense of um, being important, feeling important to somebody somewhere, including yourself, you know, because it's not going to be a person right there, but we have got to work on those intrinsic qualities so that people will feel valued um, even when no one is in the room. And that's what you're 
to, to your point earlier of making sure that the voices are heard and valued, you know, I can go into a space with like truly caring about the people in there. But if I walk in and say, here's what's wrong in your community, and here's what we're going to do to fix it, that conveys a much different message than, hi, I'm here to help. Where do you see the needs? Where can I get engaged? Right, exactly. And it's like, I want to hear you. I want to hear you. Your voice is important to me. And I am here to listen so that I can see what I can do to help support. You know, so yeah. Listening is a skill that unfortunately we don't utilize as much as we have the opportunity to do. And I've always heard you've got two ears and one mouth for a purpose, for a reason. So we need to start listening more. We need to start reaching out to listen and actually hear. Active listening, like you mentioned earlier, it's so important to hear. And so that the person that you're connecting with knows that they're being heard. The community that you're connecting with knows that you care, you're partnering, and that you want to hear and that you're listening. Yes. Key tenets of prevention. Not just risk and protective factors, but that relationship building. Without those relationships, you, you just can't achieve what you, what you would like to achieve. I'll just throw this out. A, a friend of mine was going to work on his doctorate in prevention. And one of the key, um, it's a word I'm looking for when, you, when you're trying to figure out what you're going to research. But anyway, he was saying that it often, he said, you can have the best prevention program in the world or strategy, but if you don't have the person in place that gets the understanding about that relationship connection and have the ability to make those connections, you will not have any positive outcomes because without those, and I'll put it in quotes, soft skills, it's very difficult to establish relationships and be a success in partnering and embracing and being accepted by other communities. Particularly if you may not represent the community that you're working with. That's why prevention can't just be, it can't be like mass produced and, and sent out to the whole nation to work for everyone. You know, it needs people who are in their communities and care about what they're doing and are willing to kind of see it more as an art than a, I mean, it is a science as well. I don't want to act like prevention's not a science, it's both. And it's very fluid. And the reason it's fluid is because People change, relationships change, communities change. And we have to keep up with that fluidity. And how do you keep up with that? You stay connected and you listen, you participate, you respect, and you honor the voices in that community. Speak about coalitions and community enough. Yeah, and the power of those connections. So Gail, you are nearing retirement, which is very exciting, following a career of just true service to your community. And I'm wondering what you would say to those who are not near retirement, currently doing this type of work that is both, you know, gratifying and beautiful and also difficult. My first recommendation, and it's a tenant that I live by, focus on the people and communities that you serve. If you go into a situation or into a program or a community, focusing on checking the boxes 
getting this program implemented and maybe in the back of your mind, oh, I need to get this done so I can go to my next level in my career. That is not the key to success. One of the things, and I'll speak personally in my career path, um, my focus has always been on the people that I serve and working hard for the people and communities that I've worked in, whether it's a you know, local community, the state being a community, the whole southeastern region of the country being a community, doing the best that I can do for them, focusing on what they need as opposed to focusing on myself. That way you work hard, you work smart in terms of getting the best resources, bringing back to what, what is identified as a need. And it's opened up a path to my next job every time. Not seeking out another job, not seeking that, but it's almost as if when your job has been well done in a community with people, then avenues open up for yourself as opposed to being self-focused. I have seen so many people that were so self-focused and oftentimes the trajectory was, went up very quickly, but they fell very quickly and or they just did not have the respect um, within the, the field or, or area because they were just there to get that next, to get the next job, okay? As opposed to really being a servant leader, which is what I consider myself, that servant leadership to me has always been the key to a successful career because I can sleep at night knowing that I left it all on the table in that particular job for the people that I was tasked to serve and lead and honor. Yeah, you have to go in it with your heart, even when you have hard times. Every job is going to present certain challenges. One of the biggest challenges that I feel like um, I face is dealing with the politics, because oftentimes, I'll be quite frank, um, because I'm getting ready to retire, I can say these things probably. <laughs> Great comfort. Sometimes I've seen so many politicos that are in there just for their next step in that ladder of success as to really focusing in on making a change for the people that they serve, okay? Yeah, so it gets hard, but keep your focus on the people that you serve. And then sometimes you have to recognize certain situations may not be a match for you. And it's okay to say, this is not the best fit. So I need to give it to someone who may be able to be of greater service than I am able to be because it's just not the right fit. And that's okay. Also, you make mistakes. It's important to make mistakes. I mean, you know, you don't want that to be your main focus, but be okay with making a mistake because at least you know you were trying to do something. And if you've done due diligence with doing all the research, being well prepared, but still it wasn't the right thing, learn from it. Someone told me one time, eat crackers, drink water, roll around on the floor, dust yourself up, off, and start moving again. Let's try it again. Yeah. So those are just some key things that I've learned from in my career. That is wonderful advice. <laughs> I'll be listening back to that and <laughs> taking my own notes. <laughs> I have one other thing. Yeah. Balance. It's so important to have balance 
with the team at um, our Office of Behavioral Health Wellness, they know family first, okay? They know put your oxygen mask on first, okay? So it's just so important to have some balance because you aren't going to be good for anyone if you don't take care of yourself so, and your family. So I just wanted to make sure I put a footnote on there. Absolutely. Um, our last question that we ask everyone is what does the process of awareness to action mean to you? Okay. Awareness is just the first step. Okay. It's so important to be aware of whatever the topic, whatever the interest, but just to have the information to heighten your awareness. You should be well informed before you take action. Action is important. Nothing gets done without action, okay? If you want to make a difference in your life, in the life of someone else, in a community, there's got to be action. My reputation also, people know that I'm a change agent, okay? Um, to go in and make systems change requires action. Going in to help someone feel connected requires action. So words without deeds, thoughts without deeds, it, it doesn't accomplish anything. If it's all up here and it's not being shared with anyone and or you aren't doing anything to create the change you want to say or create the change that's been expressed to you. So get all your information, heighten your awareness, and then take all of that with tools in your toolbox and work to create some type of action that's going to make a difference in the lives of others. Yeah. Beautiful. Gail, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing uh, so much wisdom and perspective from, as I said before, a, a really remarkable career. I'm really grateful that you spent time with us in, in your last few months in this role. Casey, I really appreciate you having me. Once again, I think it's my, um, it's been an honor. It's been a pleasure to be in this field and it's up to make sure I share some of the things that I've learned that have helped me and hopefully it will help others as they go along the path of hopefully prevention, coalitions, et cetera. So thank you. I appreciate it. I think it absolutely will help others. Thanks for listening. And thank you to Gail for joining us. Make sure you subscribe to Awareness to Action so you catch the rest of the conversations we have in store for season two.